here's one of the biggest promises in the big book. It says, so our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. Now, why is that a promise? Because if my problems are of everybody else's making, the only way I'm ever going to be okay is if I can get everybody else to act right. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Buenos dias or buenas noches. That was the voice of Mr. Charlie P that you heard at the beginning of this episode and you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment on this here episode number 195 uno nueve cinco of sober speak but first things first this episode is brought to you by it's sponsored by Rito and Randy and Ian, Brad, Giuliani, excuse me, Juliana, Kurt, Todd, and Terry. Do you know what Rito and Randy and Ian and Brad and Juliana and Kurt and Todd and Terry did? Well, let me fill you in for those of you who may be first time listeners. They went to our website, soberspeak.com. They clicked on the yellow paypal donate tab and they made a, a contribution so thank you rita rito randy ian brad juliana kurt todd and terry this episode is coming right out to ya i john m just another bozo on the bus Oh, if I knew how to say the bus in Spanish, I would, but I don't. We'll be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started. No matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table for all, and we have we are glad you have joined us. If you're not following us on the 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 Instagram, 
please search us out. It's at SoberSpeak, all one word. And we would love for you to follow us. If you are not following us on in Facebook, how come it's on Instagram and in Facebook? Or is it on Facebook? I don't know. Nonetheless, if you're not following us on Facebook, uh, go out there, search for a, a secret Facebook group, and we will let you in the super secret Facebook group. You just have to request to be in the group. It is uh, searchable. Now you can see just so everybody knows who the admins are, but you cannot see anybody else that is in the group. It is a private secret, whatever you want to call it, a uh, group. And you can look up Facebook and all the rules around a, uh, a secret Facebook group. Nonetheless, what do I have? Um, Oh, I put out a little call last week and I sent out an email for those of you who are interested in, quote, blogging for the website that the lovely Mrs. M has created. By the way, that is www.soberspeak.com. We want to get some more content out there for those who like to read blogs and websites. And um, if you are interested in summarizing one of the episodes you have listened to in the past or... If there is a particular subject that you are passionate about, that you would like to, like to write about, just email yours truly, John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. I'll give you a little bit of direction, and we will get you set up on the website. By the way, you will be able to identify yourself by your name, your first name, and your last initial. And like, for example, when Rebecca wrote a a uh, a blog, she, she put her home group in there as well, and what country she's from, which is New Zealand, and that kind of stuff. So anyway. Anyway, if you're into that kind of thin and you'd like to um, uh, participate, once again, feel free to reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Now, on to our guest, our featured guest of the week, Mr. Charlie P. from Austin, Texas. We've had Charlie P on once in the past. We are entitling this particular episode. So our troubles we think are basically of our own making. And most of you, a lot of you will recognize that quote from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But Charlie has been sober since May 22nd of 19, excuse me, March 22nd of 1985. Five. I almost uh, gypped him out of a, a, a couple of months there. But anyway, Charlie talks about his experience with pawn shops and the shame that he endured because of that particular experience. Charlie describes what it means to have a newcomer experience as a, quote, step one experience is what he calls it. He discusses turning points, accepting spiritual help, uh, the actor and the director in the big book, the, quote, toolkit of self-will, unquote, is what he calls it, selfishness, self-centeredness, etc. cetera. Uh, and one of my favorite parts of this uh, is when Charlie quotes Bob D by saying, dying of alcoholism is like being kicked to death by rabbits. <laughs> slow and painful. All right, everybody, without further ado, 
Please help me welcome, stand up and give a big round of applause, if you will, <laughs> Mr. Charlie P. You don't really have to do that. Anyway, we will have plenty Oh, listener feedback at the end of this. As usual, you guys have been writing in a lot of stuff lately, and I really appreciate it. Uh, we will talk to you on the back end of this episode. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So we are back again. With Mr. Charlie P. of Austin, Te- well, you know what? I'd tell you what, Charlie, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date, if you will, sir, and tell people where you are located in this great land of ours. I just started to say it, but I won't take that thunder away from you. Well, thank you, John. I'm Charlie Kerr. I'm a very grateful recovered alcoholic. I uh, I live in Austin, Texas, the capital city of the great state of Texas. And my home group, my sobriety date is March 22nd of 1985. And my home group is the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're ever in Austin, we meet at the Austin New Church on uh, Tuesday nights at 730. If you're ever in Austin, We'd love to see you at 2701 South Lamar, 7.30 p.m. We have a, a line-by-line big book study meeting. It's been meeting for 15 years, and uh, we just have a ball. And we'd love to see anybody come by, and a lot of people have. So it's a, it's a real gift. And the other thing we talked about last time, I don't know if you're still having that, the Zoom meeting. Uh, are you having that as well? We do. We're Zooming on. We had such a... All of a sudden, we had like 600 people come into our Zoom meeting. So we, when we went back live, we weren't just going to slam the door on it. So now we meet live at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. All my times are Central Time. Um, on Zoom, at, and our Zoom number is 630-577-473. At 630-577-473. And uh, and we uh, we have we have the same format on Zoom on Wednesday nights. Is there a password? No password. Yeah, and we announced that last time you were on the program. Do you any Do you know if anybody joined from? Yeah, yeah uh, we, we've had a few come on, and I'm going to confirm that meeting number. Um, okay, you're looking it up there. Yeah, six three zero five seven seven four seven three. Yep. That's what I have too. I'm looking at it. And so uh, I'll try to remember to put that in the uh, the show notes again. I know we did. So just so you all know, uh, if you didn't hear Charlie's first episode, he was on episode number 176. And we titled that episode, I Thought I Changed My Mind. And, and before we go into that, okay. So so last time we were together, we talked about the physical allergy, the phenomenon of craving, and we told we we mentioned that we were going to follow up with both the solution and the plan of action. So that's what we've gotten back together this time. But before we go into that, why don't you go ahead and explain a little bit about that the title of the last episode, and that and it was I thought I changed my mind. What did you mean by that? Well, thanks, John. You know, and I'm just going to apologize again. When we did the last episode, I had an upcoming throat procedure, and I thought I was going to sound like Bing Crosby by the time we got to, for you kids, that was a singer uh, <laughs> back in the old days. Ask your parents about a Christmas album. But I uh, I thought I was uh, going to be smoother by now, but uh, it's still 
not the best. And, but Okay, we well, hold on just a second. Before we go on to that topic mm-hmm. of uh, the the uh, episode title, I, I do want to cover your voice real quick and talk to people a little bit about what you had done. And, and you have some more procedures coming up this week. And why don't you go ahead and describe what's going on with your voice? Well, the good news is they're, they're convinced it's not cancer. It's just I had some dysplasia on my vocal cords, and they went in and laser treated it seven weeks ago. And last week I went in for a follow-up and it's still red and there's a blister looking thing on it probably from overuse and so i'm about to do a 10-day cycle of steroids and a five-day silence um and see if all the redness doesn't go away and and which would be great if it'll respond to that that beats the heck out of surgery because you only get so many surgeries on your vocal cords before you start losing voice um um so But, you know, a lot of people are dealing with a lot worse than I am. So I I told the doctor, just keep me walking and talking and and we'll all be fine. If if this is the worst we have to put up with, even this would be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I feel a little bit guilty here recording you. Did you say part of this is from overuse and and I'm sitting here recording you? Hey, it's all good. I uh, only have three talks scheduled for May. And two, two of them are today. You know, it's the funniest thing. I have another talk at 9.30 tonight for the Portland, West Portland group. But no, I'm very excited to be here. And okay. I, t- I talk at work. I sell for a living. I sponsor about 26 guys. So I, I, and, and I live with Katie. So I, I get to do plenty. I do plenty <laughs> of talking. Speaking of Katie, I got to meet her right before we started today. And those who are familiar with Charlie P will know his lovely bride, Katie P, and we're going to have her on the uh, podcast eventually. But uh, uh, we talked about this a little last time. You you guys have been married for how long now, but known each other for, gosh, it seems like we're forever. Best friends for 20 years. And then her husband uh, passed away. He, um, he, he had a brain tumor. He wound up relapsing behind the medication. And he actually died of a drug overdose at, after being sober 23 years. It just rocked our recovery community. And then um, not too long, well, a year or so after that, Katie caught me at a weak moment and made a pass at me. And uh, and, <laughs> and, and we've been a couple for 18 years. So it's, it's, well, that's great. Yeah. she's. Now, I'll, I'll warn you in advance. Uh, Brace yourself when she comes on. She's a little bit like getting a drink from a fire hose, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. A lot coming at you. A lot coming at you. We'll look forward to it. All right. So let's go back to, I want to do a couple things. Number one, I want to talk about the title of the last episode and what that meant. Mm-hmm. And then also, as we were wrapping up the the first episode that we recorded together, you mentioned uh, you wanted to pick up next time we got together on a, a story regarding a pawn shop. So let's do it one at a time. First things, uh, I thought I changed my mind. What did you mean by that? Well, You know, one of the things we said last time is that the the three things that made Alcoholics Anonymous a big deal when it all came together was an understanding of three things, an understanding of the problem with alcoholism, a solution for that problem. But even if I know what the problem is and I know the solution, it doesn't help me if I don't know how to make it take place. 
we have a program of action that will produce that solution. And that's what we talk about a lot. And, and the thing I talked about last week, and I really want to move into it again this week, is this problem of alcoholism and what, what it means. Because I spent a great deal, I, I've spent some time in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous raising my hand and saying, my name's Charlie, I'm alcoholic. And I didn't know what it meant. I mean, I, I figured if there was such a thing as an alcoholic, surely I must be one. But we didn't go into this thing we talked about last time about the physical allergy coupled with the mental obsession. And so beautifully described in the doctor's opinion and the first 20, at least 20, 44 pages of the book, but the first 23 pages talk about the physical aspect of alcoholism, this phenomenon of craving. And what I say a lot of times when I talk about it is that the tricky part about the phenomenon of craving is that I never thought I'd triggered a phenomenon of craving when I would start drinking. I just thought I changed my mind. You know, oh, sure, I said I was going to just have a couple, but I changed my mind. Um, you know, and, and, you know two is a bad number. Maybe we'll have seven. You know, maybe. And But looking back on it, anytime I would start drinking, I would trigger this phenomenon of craving, which caused uh, uh, a... Uh, a compulsion to drink that I, you know, when I start drinking, I'm all about drinking and I can't control it on my own power. And it would be a beautiful, I mean, it's a big problem, but it's not my biggest problem because if my biggest problem was what happens when I drink four ounces of vodka, my solution would be simple. Just don't drink vodka. But that then is when it brings in the second piece of it is that I don't get okay when I stop drinking. I, I get, restless, I get irritable, I get discontented, people start to bug me, you know, um, that sort of thing. And you could, if you had a thousand foot view of me, you'd be able to tell within a couple of days, uh-oh, he's about to twist off again. He's going to start a fight with his girlfriend. He's going to, you know, he's going to get mad at work and he'll be drinking in no time. And, and so what it happens is it, it brings me into this terrible cycle that the book talks about where there's this circle where I, I drink and I trigger the phenomenon of craving. Now I'm drinking, 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 and after a while it gets really bad, and I have to stop or I get stopped. And then uh, that's okay for a minute. In fact, it starts looking like maybe I was making too big of a deal out of this thing, you know, and, and because what happens is I start getting uncomfortable. And, 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 and I start getting restless and irritable and discontented. And I get so uncomfortable that it triggers this mental obsession to drink again. And it may not work well, but it worked once and it worked in the past. And, and, you know, and I always say when, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. <laughs> and, and, and next thing you know, I get, you know, when I take that drink, it feels like, um, it doesn't feel like the problem. It feels like the solution, you know? And, and so uh, what happens is I drink until I have to stop and then I stop until I have to drink and I drink until I have to stop. And then I stop until I have to drink. And, and if you're caught in that terrible cycle, there's a, Bottom below the bottom, you know. I, I tell guys all the time, don't ever say it can't get any worse. That just shows a lack of imagination. 
But the thing we try and I think because you might look up in three years going, God, I wish I'd quit back then when everything was still pretty good, you know, because now it's really bad. And and so um what happens is when we get to about page twenty-four in the book, we we I've I've placed myself in a position where I've lost the power of choice and control. I can't choose whether I'm gonna drink or not. And once I do start drinking, I can't control the amount I take. And, and you know, the tricky thing is trying to do them both at the same time, trying to choose and control my drinking. I could either choose not to drink, but I wasn't enjoying it, or I could control my drinking, and I wasn't enjoying it. So, and the way, the, the story I like to tell about losing the power of choice and control was the pawn shop story. I, I grew up in Dallas, where, where you are now. And I just loved pawn shops. I loved, I grew to love them, I should say. I loved everything about them. I loved the purity of the equation. You know, I, I never once walked in, you because you just go into the pawn shop and you give them the shotgun and they give you the money. And you go back and you give them the deer rifle and they give them the money. And then you give them the sterling silver and they give, I've never once had a pawnbroker go, good God, man. What are you going to do with this money? You know, or 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 weren't you just here two hours ago? Or is that, you know, it's it's never like that. They just give you the money. And and the thing was, I had a plan. And we alcoholics make some really good plans. I mean, we do. We're smart people. We make plans that you could take over to the university and show it to them, and they'd look it over and go. That's a pretty solid plan you got there, you know. And, and my plan was that I had 90 days to get everything out of the pawn shop. You have a 90-day period where if you pay the interest and the principal, you can get it back. So I wasn't selling this stuff. I was just pawning it. And the plan was always that I'll come back when I'm flush and, and get it back. Well, now, part of the problem was I may have mentioned last week I was so poorly treated as a child that I ran away from home for good at the age of 28. <laughs> My mother doesn't think that's funny, but, um, but I mean, and I'm serious. Never went back, you know, but, you know, so, but so a lot of this was going on at that time. And the thing about this, this plan I had for the post office, uh, one complicating factor was that I didn't own very much stuff. So I was having to pawn stuff that didn't belong to me. And that puts a little more heat on the equation, but it's okay. You know, I got a plan. And and so, uh, but one day I pulled an insurance scam that I've since made amends for, and I had enough money to get everything out of the pawn shop. And it's time, to, it's go time. You know, we need to go to the pawn shop and get all this stuff. Now, now that, so, but, I used to drink at a little place in East Dallas called the Spillway Pub over by the Spillway on White Rock Lake. And, and uh, I just loved the place. And it was the only place in Dallas that would let me run a tab. So it's also a very important piece of business to go by and settle my tab at the Spillway Pub and uh, because I'm going to need that, you know, when the money's gone again. So, now, But we're not going to do anything stupid. We're not going to go crazy. We're certainly not going to trigger some kind of phenomenon of craving or anything like that, whatever that is. But the problem is I'm a blackout drinker. 
And one of the few lines in the book that doesn't apply to me, I love our book, and it, and it almost universally applies to me, but there's one line where it's on page 30 where it says, our stories are filled with countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like normal men. I don't, I don't have any experience with that. I never tried to drink like normal men. I was about oblivion. I was a sloppy drinker. Um, I went a year and a half without working there at the end, and, and uh, I was about getting loaded from the very beginning. So I'm, I blacked out a lot, but I didn't have many of these. On this next thing I know, after going by to settle my tab at the Spillway Pub, I came out of, I was upstairs at, the, at my parents' house, and I came out of a five-day blackout. Now, I didn't have many of those. I had a lot of those blackouts where you don't remember the drive home, or you, wear, you, know, you look out the curtains to see if the car's there, and wow, you know, why are there weeds in my bumper, and you know, that, that sort of thing. But this was five days of don't remember anything. And I came out, and I'm sitting up, and I can tell you what the entire room looked like. I can tell you the color of the carpet, the bedspread, the furniture, the wallpaper, the temperature of the room. Because when I came out of this blackout, I had still had my jeans on. And in my right-hand pocket, I had $8. And in my left front pocket, I still had all of those pawn tickets. And we've all had those mornings where you just go, oh, no. Oh, no, because now I am out of plan, and I shot my wad on this other scam, and I got nothing, and I'm, I'm not a sociopath. I've worried about it for a minute, but I've looked at it a little bit. I'm not a sociopath, you know, and, I, and I'm not going to sell my father's beloved shotgun for $40 if, if I can figure out any. So I would have to go to my father who was a good man and say, dad, listen, um, if, if we act now, I can get you a pretty good deal on all your stuff. But if we wait till tomorrow, it's strictly retail. And I always have to tell that kind of like, it's a joke a little bit, because if I touch, if I touch the desperation of that day, having to stand there and tell my father that I've pawned all this stuff, (laughs) And, and I got nothing. Uh, so we would have to get in his truck and let me try a cough drop here. Dallas is a big spread out town like Los Angeles. It's not, so it wasn't just go to the pawn shop. It was, we have to go up on East Grand and get your shotgun. We go on Buckner Boulevard and get your deer rifle. And we got to go out to Oak Cliff and get your metal detectors. And then I left your Sterling Silver out on Belline Road. So it was all day in the car with me and my dad and all that shame. Mm. And when we'd be driving around, I'd be going, Dad, I swear to God, I will never do this again. I don't want to feel like this. I don't want you to feel like this. I will never do this again. And if I was lying to that man, I damn sure didn't know it because it felt like I meant it with every fiber of my being. But the thing I didn't know riding in his truck with him was that I didn't have the power to make good on that choice, on that that promise. 
That's what I'm talking about when I talk about powerless over alcohol is I don't have the power to manage that decision to not drink. And once I start drinking, I can't manage it. My life has become unmanageable and I'm powerless over alcohol because I would hit the back door of his house like a cat burglar within three or five days and it'd just be like that. And we'd I'd grab something and off we'd go. And by the time I got to you people, my father and I had made the rounds of the pawn shops three times. Mm. That's how cool I was. That's how slick I was. I was a burden to anyone that was unfortunate enough to love me or be involved with me. That's the guy I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought I had a little bitty problem. I figured AA probably had a little bitty answer. Now, that's if I've learned two things since I've got here, it's that one is I had a much bigger problem than I thought I had when I got here. And the other is that Alcoholics Anonymous had an enormous answer. And I didn't know that coming in. But what, so this powerless over alcohol, all of this, our book spends the first 44 pages. I mean, a big, and the doctor's opinion, basically, almost half of our recovery text talking about the problem. This problem with alcohol that I have a, a body that, doesn't respond normal to alcohol, and I got a mind that's going to drive me back to it every time, every time, every time. We will be continuing our conversation with Charlie P. from Austin, Texas, in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you can find approximately... 195 or so other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Charlie Pete. All right, so we're talking about the problem. Uh, we're talking about the solution, the fact that you thought you had a little problem and AA had a little solution. So take me on from there. And, and well, the punch shop story, by the way, was very, uh, very telling, right, uh, of where this kind of disease will take us. But go right ahead. Well, it was absolute powerlessness. And, and, uh, and so now the thing is, I think sometimes we have a tendency to rush somebody through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think, you know, the book talks about the ex-problem drinker uh, who's found our solution, who's properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of a new man in a couple of hours. And that's, I think, a big piece of being properly armed with the facts about myself is being able to explain to somebody that they don't just have a moral problem or a weakness, that, that, that this, this combination of physical allergy, mental obsession, mental blank spot makes me so powerless. And and it drives me into a need for the solution because down, you know, because down here at the bottom of page 24, it says, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. 
and and it goes on to talk about um, this. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires. But we saw that it really worked in others. That's one, and. We had come to believe in the hopelessness of futility of life as we've been living it. So my job is to give this guy a fatal dose of alcoholism or what I call a step one experience. Well, because you see guys, I talk at treatment centers sometimes, and when a guy has a step one experience, you can see them lean forward in their chairs and it hits them like a ton of bricks and they're going, hold on just a minute. I've been in and out of AA for 15 years, and I've never heard the stuff you're talking about. Because for a whole bunch of problem drinkers, when when we talk about going back to AA, or you know, it's it's okay. I got to quit drinking, and I got to go back to those meetings. And I'm not. I have nothing. I love the meetings. I love the fellowship. But just going to AA meetings, if you have alcoholism the way we're describing it, will keep a guy like me sober. Right up to the point that I drink again, right? You know, and, and and I can't figure out why. And when you got a guy that's coming in and you're saying, and he's thinking, what's going to be different this time? I'm going to try to get to that here in a minute. But the the the, the thing is, when we talk about this power greater than myself, the reason we have to pound this step one experience is I don't know why I would give a flip about a power greater than myself. If I still think my power is going to get the job done. But the moment that I'm crushed by this fact that on my own, I got no shot. Well, then this power gets real interesting, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it goes on later on to talk about it on, on page 26, you know, same 25. It says, we believe there's, if you're as seriously alcoholic as we were, there's no middle of the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. You know, we read that part of how it works in the, in the meetings, and it says we stood at the turning point. We asked his protection. Well, but for years, I never asked myself what the turning point was, and it says right, it's right here on page 25. It says, one was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation. And there's people listening to, to this podcast that are trying to blot out an intolerable situation, you know? And it says, and the other is to accept spiritual help. That's it. I stand it, but there's no flashing red line, red light at the, at the turning point, you know? And, and it's, it, but it's like either keep going the way you're going, try not to think about it, and dying of alcoholism is a long, slow death, you know. My buddy Bob D says it's it's like being kicked to death by rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> by the time you're dead, you wish you'd been dead a long time ago. <laughs> you know? But so and then you know it tells this wonderful story about Roland Hazard, but my favorite piece, and we switch over to the solution, is it says we in our turn on twenty seven twenty-eight. On 28, it says, we sought the same escape that Roland Hazard had found with the desperation of a drowning man. This gift of desperation comes from a clear understanding of how sunk I really am. You know, that this is not something I'm going to think my way out of. I'm not fixing to get a handle on it. Um, 
in Texas we say fixing. It means preparing to. <laughs> <you know? laughs> it doesn't mean repairing. It means preparing to. I'm not, I'm not fixing to get a handle on it, and nobody can help me. And, and the thing I love about drowning men is they don't ask a lot of questions. If you spend the time pounding this problem, they get much more open-minded about the solution, which is this power greater than myself. You know, and, and uh, because until I've had the step one experience and that gift of desperation, I think I need for you to tell me what we're going to do, how's it going to go, what's it going to feel like when I'm doing it, what's the end result going to be. And I thought it was really important that I approve of the whole process, right? But when I've had that step one experience, all you're going to hear out of me is, and I can tell that John used to drink like I did and he's not drinking anymore. All you're going to hear out of me is, what do you want me to do? And then, oh, that's funny, that makes me emotional because I, there's magic that takes place in that moment because the next thing you're going to hear out of him is, okay, I did that. Now what do you want me to do? And from there we roll. But otherwise I have a guy that's thinking, you know, maybe I got a problem. If my step one decision is just a mental exercise, then, my, you know, sure I'm alcoholic. Well, then my third step is going to be an academic exercise too. But when I have this desperation of a step one experience, it's going to carry, it has, it drives me into the rest of the work. One step calls for the next step. And the desperation calls for power. And the second step calls for the third step. And so a couple of things that are right. So sure. number one, I, when you were reading earlier, and I've always found it a little bit funny slash interesting slash ironic that you tell a new man that yeah, he is beyond he or she is beyond human aid uh it's it's like a welcome to alcoholics anonymous <laughs> we we're glad you're here by the way you're beyond human aid um, yeah we can't help you yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then the other piece is that uh, i i did i wanted to make that switch there you talk about you know uh making that shift from from the problem and not just realizing that this is I, I mean you need to understand the academic part of it and understand what alcoholism is and such but you know how do you get to that piece of actually turning your will and your life over to the care of god as you understand them and uh -huh. that's what i think you wanted to shift into next and what we would call the solution well and that's the other thing that that amazes civilians is when you get to the line where it says whether to live life on to die an alcoholic death or to live life on a spiritual basis are not always easy decisions to make. To normal people, they're like, that's a tough one for you. <laughs> right. well, I mean, you know, you're like going, mm, go on to the bitter end, die, <laughs> die an alcoholic death. Can, can you... Can you tell me a little bit more about that bitter end? You know, right. <laughs> do I, how long does it take? Do I get to drink between right. now and the, and the bitter end? You know, that's is there a third option? Yeah. So we we pound, and you know, we wish we had a door number three because we know a lot of our members are not excited about the spiritual aspect of this program. But we were pretty excited when we found door number two. You know, before all this came along, guys like me went to the nut house or the graveyard. Or both, you know, and, and so uh, when we uh, 
what happened? So I'm going to skip way ahead because I don't, in, even in workshops, I don't have a tremendous amount of time to talk about uh, more about alcoholism and we agnostics. I think we agnostics is one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature ever written, and it deals a lot with my with my prejudices and and the thing is that is, you know it uses language like we beg of you to lay aside prejudice even against organized religion and and I, I love to talk about it but with time restraints don't let us talk about it but time but step one is this problem step two is the solution but the thing is there's a lot of examples in our book of people that had two of the three things together. They understood the problem, like Dr. Bob understood the solution. We even had the Oxford Group Program of Action, but he didn't understand the problem. Wasn't until Bill came to him, explained alcoholism the way Silkworth explained it to him, Bill saw, Bob sobered up never to drink again. Other people had knew a little bit about the problem, like, Carl Young, talking to that certain American businessman, he says, you got the mind of a chronic alcoholic. You need these here and there, once in a while, amazing spiritual awakenings I've seen. i got a great story to go with that, but I, I'm not going to tell it tonight. But, I mean, he's got going, you need one of those. We've got no flipping idea how to make it happen. But you know, that's the only thing that's going to fix you. The big thing we have is we have a program of action that will bring about that solution. That I've admitted in step two, the only thing that will help me is a spiritual experience. And then our 12th step, it says, having had a spiritual awakening. And how did it happen? As the result of these steps. So it's saying the only thing that will help me is available to us as a result of these steps. And by now that we've spent about an hour and a half on step one, that solution is really interesting. Well, the thing I want to talk about in the two hours we have left today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Charlie, don't worry about the time because we can always schedule some more time to come back around and talk about whatever you need to talk. As long as your voice is going to be okay in a couple months. I love being here. And if it helps anybody, oh, I'm sorry, I bumped the mic. If it helps anybody, it's certainly worth the effort because I we act like sometimes that everybody out there drinking knows this stuff, that they know about alcoholism, that they know what AA does, and we don't, you know. In fact, one of my favorite exercises, I've done it in rooms with 6,000 people in it, is when you say, think about when you would swear you were never going to drink again to your people or whatever, and then they look up and you're drinking. And they'd always ask that question. they go, John, why did you start drinking again? And we give them the only answer we've got, which is what? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. God, it's like I've, I did it. I've done it in big rooms, and it's like a chorus. And I, we go, I don't know. I mean, it's just what I do. And I hurt the people that love me. I make promises I don't keep. And by the time I get here, I think, disease my left foot. There's something really bad wrong with me. And to find out that this is a problem and to have a solution for it is an amazing message to be able to carry. But when I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, we made a big mistake. And I had a sponsor I love for the rest of my life, but we basically said, are you alcoholic? 
And I thought, well, yeah, sure, I must be. You know, I didn't know anybody that drank more than I did. And and I've met a few since then. We, we got some impressive stories in AA. But, and then we had to dance around the higher power issue. And once we got okay with the higher power issue, we got down on our knees and did the third step prayer and started writing inventory. I think it's one of the biggest mistakes being made in Alcoholics Anonymous, assuming that there are any mistakes being made in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because what happened was we went right from, are you alcoholic? Do you believe in God? To get down on your knees and do the third step prayer. And for a whole bunch of our membership, the whole third step is the third step prayer. I've done workshops. I was out in Utah. I'm going to burn up some time here, but uh, you're good. I, uh, but I was out in Utah one time doing a, a workshop, and it was a men's retreat. And I had a sponsor with me. And we're talking, and Katie's name comes up, and the guy that recorded it comes from behind his table. There's a group of us sitting there between me at sessions, and he points at me and he says, "This guy's wife did a one-hour talk on step three, and never even got to the third step prayer." I remember thinking, we do that all the time. But if your total understand that's remarkable, if your total understanding of the third step is you do the third step prayer. But so that was my experience for about 17 years. I had my biggest spiritual awakening at 17 years of sobriety. I'm sober 36 years now. But at 17 years, my man named Mark Houston walked into my life. And if you don't hear me say anything else, Hear me say, get a hold of some Mark Houston recordings and study them, listen to them, take notes, pause them. He changed my life and the lives of many people, and, and the message we're still trying to carry. But when I say we made a mistake, skip it. What happens when you do that, when you go right from do you believe in God to the third step prayer, you skip this body of work that takes place in pages 60 to 63. And it's really not very important. It's just the root of my problem and the basis of my recovery for the rest of my life. (laughs) Other than that, just skip it, you know? Yeah, not important. And let us know how it's going. And that's why we're blowing up marriages and we're, you know, blowing up jobs and can't figure out why I want to kill myself uh, at eight years sober and those sorts of things. And to be able to tell that guy there's more available and a lot of it takes place in these pages and what comes from them. So in the time we have, I want to go to page 60. And after that A, B, and C that we read, it says being convinced. You know what the next line after A, B, and C? That part up to A, B, and C. You know, A, that we're alcoholic, could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. And that's the end of that part of how it works that we read at the start of, I call it the most often read, least listened to portion of the big book, because most of us zone out about the time they say, "Right, rarely have we seen a person fail. <laughs> come back come back into the room by the time they go, B, that probably know him. So the next line after that says, being convinced, we were at step three. Being convinced of what? A, B, and C. So if, being convinced that tells me that A, B, and C do a pretty good job of summing up one and two. 
But when we roll into step three, it says that we decided to turn, like you talked about earlier, we're going to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him. Now, if I'm working with a guy and I tell him, okay, Bob, we need you to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. I, I, I love t- taking the big book and turning statements into questions. And there's sometimes where I, you know, I go, all right, here I go, this would be a very fair question for this guy to ask. He's desperate. He knows he's sunk. And I say, I want you to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. I think it would be a fair question for him to go, but just what do you mean by that? And just what do we do? And, you know, and from there, it spends the next two pages talking about what we mean. And then it switches to what we do. Now, here's the piece that I missed for 17 years. It says the first requirement is that, and I go first person in this paragraph. I go, it says the first requirement is that Charlie be convinced that any life, that Charlie's life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And above convinced, I've written, are you convinced? Now, the thing is, at 17 years sober, that line leapt off the page at me. And not only was I not convinced of that concept, that line had never touched me because we went right from God could and would if you saw it to the third step prayer. So I'm out there working a program like the problem is alcohol. And now, believe me, the not drinking is a big piece of what we do, but all of a sudden it says I got to be convinced that my life run on self-will can hardly be, and it says on that basis. Now Bill uses that term basis a lot, basis, basic, basically. He uses that a lot, and it, and when I looked it up in our old dictionary, like we use in our meeting, it says the underlying principle of something or the foundation of something is its basis. And when the basis of my life is I'm running this deal, it says I'm almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. When I'm with a guy, I take about an hour and 15 minutes to do these next two pages, but I'm going to try to do it real fast because it goes on to say, even though our motives are good, so I can't even trust my motives. I'm always getting in jackpots, and it seems like my motives are good. Right. But, but so, and then it goes on to say, most people try to live by self. We're like an actor. Anybody ever read this thing about the actor and get nothing out of it? You know, you're like, what? Well, it turns out this actor wants to run the whole show. But what I didn't know for a long time is that the reason he's such a pain in the neck is because he's not the director, he's just an actor. Right, he's supposed to stand on the X and say his lines, but he's got an opinion about everything. Well, now <laughs> we're starting to sound like me a little bit. You know, I walk in the grocery store and I got opinions. I like to form really strong opinions based on a limited perspective. You know, <laughs> yeah. why do they have the bean dip over here and the potato, potato chips are over there, and, and you know, and, and all that? And and but then there comes this delusion. If only my arrangements would stay put, if only people would do as I wish, the show would be great. How can that be selfish, John? I mean, I'm trying to create Charlie-topia, but you're invited, you know, and it's going to be great for everybody. And it's just life would be wonderful. And in trying to make these arrangements, this is what I call the toolkit of self-will. 
So the toolkit of what? Self-will. Okay. It says when I'm trying to get things to go my way, sometimes I'm kind, considerate, even modest and self-sacrificing, right, in trying to get you to do what I want you to do. Unless what? Unless that ain't working. It says on the other hand, I might be mean, egotistical, selfish, dishonest, but usually I have mixed traits. This is what usually happens. I mean, anybody, I'm like a halfback juking in the open field. You know, I, I'm, I'm nice to this guy. I'm mean if that doesn't work. But I'm always trying. And this is what usually happens. The show didn't come off very well. Now, see if this sounds familiar. I began to think life doesn't treat me right. Anybody in the last two weeks feel like life hadn't treated you right? <laughs> you know? And it says, uh, but do I decide no, this is a faulty premise? No. I pull back for a minute, and I, I decide to exert myself more. And I drive in, I become on the next occasion more demanding or more gracious. Still, the play doesn't suit me. Admitting I might be somewhat at fault, maybe this much, I'm sure others are more to blame. Mm-hmm. This is where half of my 10th uh, steps responses could start. Let me guess. The show didn't come off very well. You're, you're feeling like life isn't treating you right. And so it says, I become angry, indignant, self-pity. And this is not angry this week, indignant next week, self-pity. It's like boom, boom, boom. I can't believe they're doing this. You know, indignant. After everything I've done for these knuckleheads, this is the way they're going to treat me. And then finally, what's the use? Self-pity, what's the use? I can't work with these people. You know, I'm just, you know, and, and, and I go, Am I re- what is my basic trouble? There's that word basic again. What is the underlying problem? Am I not really a, a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? You know, um, and am I not a victim tricked by this delusion, this lie that I'm telling myself that I can seize hap- satisfaction and happiness from this life if I just manage well? And at 17 years sober, I'm managing my tail off and everything is blowing up in my face. And I can't figure out why. And 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 the and and it says, what about the play? It says, and do not his acts isn't it evident to the rest of the players what he's trying to do? And don't my actions make them want to retaliate? If I see you trying to hog the spotlight, I'm going to be trying to get up front too. And we got chaos on our hands, right? Because anybody could see what I'm a producer of confusion rather than harmony. And it goes on to say that I'm selfish, self-centered, egocentric. And when you go to the next page, okay, just what it says, it switches here, and it says selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our problem. What? I thought this was Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought vodka was the root of our problem. And it says driven by a hundred dust. Now, remember, it said, what do we mean and what do we do? It's still talking about what we mean here. And it says driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion. Self-seeking, self-pity. I step on people's toes. They retaliate, seemingly without provocation, right? I didn't do nothing. They just went up, but it says we invariably find at some point in the past we've made decisions based on self, which later placed us in them. And here's one of the biggest promises in the big book. It says, so our troubles, we think, are basically, here's that term basic again, are basically of our own making. Now, why is that a promise? 
Because if my problems are of everybody else's making, the only way I'm ever going to be okay is if I can get everybody else to act right. And I have very little experience getting everybody to act right. <laughs> but but if it's my own making, me and this power and a new attitude have a chance. And it says, I'm going to close with, with this next little paragraph. It says, they arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. Now, I never thought I was an extreme example of self-will run riot. And it's a, the next line is a drunk trap. It says, though he usually doesn't think so. You know, I tell this story, but if you went out in the United States and you got all the people, and you picked out the people that were self-will run riot, Right? And you built this 20-foot-high chain-link fence with guard towers and, and, and razor ribbon, and you herd all the people in the country that are self-will run riot into that fenced-in area. All right? Are you getting a, an image of that community? I do, yes. Now we're going to go into that community, and we're going to pluck out the extreme examples of, it, of self-will run riot. These are the ones driving the other self-will run riot people crazy. Right, So we pluck out all those extreme examples and put them in a room. Guess what we got? Welcome to Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but the problem is I don't even think I belong in the fence, right? Because I got emotives and I got my story and I, and I got, you know, what, what I was trying to do. And so I, I think when you come to pluck me out, I don't think I'm an extreme example. I think, oh, they heard my story and they, they see their mistake now. I don't, you know, they're going <laughs> to put me back in Gen Pop. No, no. I'm, I, you know, so and it goes on. And now here's where it gets heavy. It says, above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of the selfishness. And I like to look a guy right in the eye and go, what do the words above everything mean to you? I mean, it, paramount importance. It doesn't even say above everything, we got to stop drinking vodka. It says above everything, we got to get rid of this selfishness. And we must, or it kills us. But God makes that possible because the thing is, I can't just listen to this talk and go, you know, that knucklehead from Texas is right. I'm going to start being less selfish. It's in my DNA. I can't just do it on my own power. It says God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions. Lord, but we couldn't live up to them. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. You know, so... I spent a long time, and I'm, I'm going to tie it up with this. I spent a long time in AA focusing on the wrong problem. It turns out alcohol never was my problem. Alcohol was the only thing I'd ever found that would ease the discomfort of a life based on selfishness and self-centeredness. And I'd worked my whole program like the problem was alcohol. Chuck Chamberlain gave a talk called New Pair of Glasses, and they put it into a book. And, and one of the things, he told a story there about a guy, coincidentally, named Tex. And Tex had been afraid of dogs his whole life. And one day doing inventory, he realized that when he was a kid, he had been 
bit by a dog. But when he looked at it further, he realized that he'd been chasing this little neighborhood girl across her yard when her dog came out and bit him. And he said, all my life, I'd been running from dogs and chasing women, and dogs never were my problem. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the same way for me. I'd been working a program like the problem was alcohol, and it really wasn't. The problem was that I was so self-centered that I created this mental obsession, this discomfort. Now my sobriety picture gets much bigger. Now it's not just drink don't drink. Now it's how does self show up? How does it manifest? What's it like to be me? What's it like to be around me? What's it like to date me, work for me, be parented by me? You know, and, and, and it changes the whole picture. And right there is where it switches over to this is the how and why of it. I think we're going to have to do it on another, on another podcast. We're going to have to get back together again, Charlie, and I will look forward to that. Uh, and, you know, and who knows? We may do two or three more. I don't know. Neither of us are going anywhere. You have to preserve your voice for tonight talking to the Pacific Northwest. We want them to get a good Charlie P. <laughs> and um, and then you're going to have your surgery. How long will your uh, – you said you're going to have five days of silence for a while. Ten, will you, ten days. Ten days of steroids. steroids. Oh, ten days of steroids and five days of silence, though, right? I really don't look forward to that because I I do not sleep when I take those steroids. And then five days of not saying anything, Uh, which might be recommended when you haven't been sleeping. Might be a good time to keep your mouth shut, you know? Well, listen, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll end it up now and then I will get back with you. Uh, maybe we can even do it after we uh, s- stop recording here. But as you know, well, let's just make a note that we covered what we mean and we're going to start up next time. And this is the how and why of it. We're going to start it with the how and why of it. We're you gonna switch over it. to what we do and then we can roll from there. So we're going to cover the how and why of it. And then what was the next part? I said, we'll be able to roll from there. Okay. You got it. Yeah. Um, So we're doing some planning on the podcast here uh, while folks are listening to us. And I absolutely love that. I think that's the best (laughs) way to do it. Um, That's a lead in. Yeah. So I will definitely get back with you. Uh, Let me go ahead and read page 164 here to close us out. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. And this is the type of podcast that I would recommend that people go back, the type of episode, I should say, that I recommend people go back and listen to again, uh, pause it, back it up take notes on it. Uh, as you you saw me uh, earlier, Charlie, I've been taking notes like left and right as you're talking. And I'm going to go back and review my notes. And then always, you know, it's always interesting. What you don't know is that I have to go back and pick out, you know, just like, you know, 20 seconds of something that you may have talked about during the uh, uh, episode and put it on the beginning. And I have so many choices here. I don't know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to do. So anyway, God, 
God bless you, my friend. Uh, good luck with your treatment coming up. And we will get together and record some again soon, okay? And you as well, John. Thank you for all you do. God bless. God bless. As always, thank you, Mr. Charlie. I already have Charlie scheduled for an additional recording, and we will have Charlie back for a third episode here in the near future. Just stand by for more jewels of wisdom from Mr. Charlie. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback for you. Babs writes in. That's B A. B-A-B-Z, Babs. I like that name. If I was a girl, I'd like to be called Babs. But nonetheless, that's a completely different subject. Babs writes in and she says, uh, the subject line is thank you. And Babs says, I am married to an alcoholic and I like Al- I like Al-Anon very much. But for some reason, I get a lot more out of AA groups. And I've heard that before, Babs. She says, I'm very delighted to get to know your podcast and keep doing what you're doing. You're shedding light in a very dark place, and that is very good. I'm home alone, brokenhearted, because once again, my husband checked into a motel to binge drink. He does this on an average of once a month. He was sober for about eight months, and I was grateful but he's never been able to bounce back between his depression and his alcoholism. I pray for a miracle daily. I am reminded of the story in Acts 3. Of course, Jesus could have healed the cripple, but it was left for Peter, the apostle, to heal the cripple to show timing. The only reason why Peter was able to heal the cripple was because he did it in Christ's name. And while I don't expect you to get all scripture, uh, while I didn't expect you to get all the scripture with people and I don't, and I understand from me to you, I wanted to let you know I'm still waiting for a miracle when it comes to my husband. I'm hoping that a cop does not knock on my door and tell me that my husband passed away from an alcohol overdose. No one should die alone. I know that sounds dramatic, but I know you know, and I know you know that what I'm talking about, and I'm being insanely candid. I know you understand. Keep doing what you're doing. You don't know how much your light can do best, Babs. Well, Babs, I know there's a lot, a lot of people out there that can relate to exactly what you wrote in. I appreciate you being candid, candid, um, And I do understand, and there's a lot of people that understand, and that's why I read these things out there, so people will know they are not alone. Thank you, Babs. Angela writes in, and she says, good morning, John. I live in New Brunswick, Canada. Then she's got a big old maple leaf uh, emoji. Uh, and I've lived here all my life. It's a beautiful province and province. And if you ever have the chance to come all the way up north here, uh, it would be great. We don't live in igloos. Ha ha. <laughs> oh, I know. I've been to Canada many, many times. And actually, I, I love it. I love it. I absolutely love Canada. And she says, uh, this is my second time around in recovery. I quit in 2012 for three years to the day 
when I was offered a glass of champagne by my ex-in-laws at my ex-in-laws 50th wedding anniversary, and I took it. It was only a matter of months before I was a daily drinker again for the next six years. So in January of 2020, just before COVID, I really needed to end it again. I've been sober now for 533 days. Good for you. So when COVID hit and meetings were placed on hold, I searched out and found Sober Speak on Spotify. To date, I've listened to all of the episodes except maybe the last couple of weeks. It was extremely helpful during that time, and I still enjoy them today. There are a couple of speakers I resonate with, of course, but not 100% sure of the names, except for Maria. She's talking about Maria R. And she says all the episodes have something, all of the episodes have something in them that I can walk away with. I even jumped on a Zoom meeting with you guys in May of 2020. Oh, that must have been a, uh, the live, um, one of the live events we did, uh, either David G or Gary K. I can't remember who we did in May of last year. Anyway, she says things are going well. I don't want to drink, but like many others, it's in the back of my mind on a hot summer day or out for an evening meal. Of course, I opt out because I want this. Keep up the great work, John. You're helping so many people with your pot. I regret to say I've not donated. Oh, don't. Even though you say we can, if we can, even though you say only if we can, but I've listened to 99% of them and have taken so much from the episodes. I will give back. You have my word. Guess I'll have to figure out PayPal. Ha ha. Have a fantastic 24 hours, John. I know I will. Thanks. Uh, Regards, uh, Angela. Hey, I just want to say this to everybody listening out there. Do not be concerned about the donating part at all. Just keep listening. And you don't be concerned about it, Angela. Uh, I really mean that when I say, uh, if and only if the Spirit moves you to do such. And and I've said this many times before. If you have the chance uh, uh, of giving to me in this little podcast that I have versus uh, giving to local groups uh, and giving to people that are kind of boots on the ground, I'd much rather you give there. So, but anyway, God bless you. And, and I read that, I remember thinking about that before I read it, but I wanted to read it because I just don't want other people. I, if you're thinking the same thing, if you're thinking that I know others are, and I just don't want anyone to be concerned about that at all. Thank you, Angela T. Justine writes in, she says, Hi, John, I'm from Massachusetts, and I have a bit of an Boston accent, so I'm told. <laughs> hey, Justine, are you going to park the car at the Star Market? Nonetheless, she says, I am newly sober three months after an on and off decade of trying to moderate. Denial had me thinking I had one more trick up my sleeve. I have been listening to the Sober Speak podcast now for the last six months and have really enjoyed the contents and the speakers. I somehow just came up on it on the podcast app. I especially like Matthew M. on surrendering and meditation especially. Also, Jennifer H.K. cracks me up. So much strength and hope shared. 
I want to join the super secret Facebook group and I also try and I also try Sunday afternoon yoga class. By the way, just as a little uh, uh, quick announcement here, I don't think I've said it thus far on, far on this particular episode, but if you go to SoberSpeak.com and you click on the resources tab, you will see the login information that we have for a Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock p.m. Central, uh, half meeting, half yoga class that we do, and you can come in there and join us all. It's free. Megan P. puts it on, and we would love to see you guys in there, but nonetheless, She says, your podcast bring in humor and levity into a pretty serious subject. So I find it a great resource. Plus, as an Irish woman, oh, she's an Irish woman. I always love a good story. Anybody story, anytime. Please do me the honor of accepting me into the Facebook group, Justine. Well, Justine, as you know, You are in that Facebook group, and the honor is all ours. I really appreciate you writing in. David writes in, he says, good morning, Vietnam. He didn't say good morning, Vietnam. That's an old, old movie. He says, good morning. I live in Virginia. I have been sober for 13 years and have not stepped foot into an AA meeting in 12 years. Didn't work the steps and thought I was better than everyone else, in parentheses, imagine that, exclamation point. I made it a series of horrible, destructive decisions, non-alcohol related, and at the advice of a non-AA friend, started attending meetings again. That, in and of itself, is a much longer but sad and funny, miraculous story. Someone in a meeting had stated they like, quote, sober podcasts, unquote. So I searched out AA podcasts and I somehow landed on Sober Speak. Well, welcome, Mr. David, and have been listening ever since, having attended a meeting every day since November of 2020. Good for you, David. He says, thanks for your podcast. It has helped me tremendously through these difficult days. Well, God bless you. I can tell you're on the right track, and uh, I'm so glad you found some meetings again. Brad writes in, and Brad says, good day, John. And uh, he's not from Australia, but he still says, good day, John. I'm just grateful that resources such as yours are available to us seeking sobriety and a spiritual way of living. I came across Sober Speak, for I am a follower of Bill C. from Hermosa Beach, California. My sobriety day is June 18th, 2017. How fortunate are we in this current era of AA where we have recovery resources such as yours at our fingertips. I am sponsored, have done the steps three times, and I try to stay in the middle of our pack. I have a home group, but I am fortunate that I am, but I'm fortunate that any of my daily meetings bring a sense of being home when I'm present. I'm sharing my experience with a man who is seeking our way of life. 
I take time each day to simply pull out my phone, put in the headphones, and listen to AA speakers sharing their experience, strength, and hope. How cool it is that I can do that at any time of the day. I listen to Chuck Chamberlain, Sandy Beach, Mark Houston, etc., along with a man who simply says, quote, bumps me onto the broad highway. Uh, unquote, Bill C. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Those speakers, I used to listen to a lot of tapes when I first got, they were all cassette tapes back then. I know that they don't make cassette tapes anymore, but that's what, that's what I was listening to back then. And I completely get a breath. So anyway, he says, so I found your podcast due to the fact that a bunch of Bill C's talks are on YouTube, and there I found his two appearances with you. Since then, I have browsed around your list and enjoyed the other speakers. So let me say this. First of all, Bill C probably has about mm, eight or so episodes on Sober Speak. And the reason I say that, because if, if you go to the website, SoberSpeak.com, uh, and you click on the podcast, there's a little search feature, and you could actually put the word Bill in there, and all of his episodes would pop up just to kind of uh, make that a little bit easier for you. But nonetheless, um, he says... I'll be a loyal listener, John, and I will plan on continuing. Oh, he's talking about a contribution. Like I said, if you're out there listening, don't worry about that. Uh, but thank you, though, uh, Mr. Brad. He says, uh, I'll plan on contributing for that's how many of the younger generation will probably find us. I, I think you're right, Brad. He says, uh, we, we here in Southern California wish you and your wife great success. And I thank you for your most valuable contributions to making sure the quote, good news is always available. Peace, brother, Brad D. Well, Brad D., thank you so much. That was very encouraging and peace back at you. Bridget writes in and she says, hi, John M. Now, she actually does live in Australia. I live in Australia in the state of Queensland on the Gold Coast. Well, crikey, crikey, isn't that the term? Yeah, crikey, right? I'm sorry, uh, Bridget. I go off a little uh, uh, off uh, the beaten path sometimes. She says, I am a mom of three beautiful children and the wife of a lovely man who has been by my side for over 20 years. I recently celebrated my 10th year of sobriety on the 10th of June, 2021. Well, God bless you, Bridget. And it was such a huge milestone. Through the grace of God, I made it, and I honestly never knew that living a sober life for a decade would be possible for me. I found Sober th sober Speak through searching for podcast lists for those that focus on alcoholism and recovery. I enjoy your podcast very much, and thank you for devoting so much of your time and energy into producing the podcast for the benefit of many. A little about myself. I have OCD, which was diagnosed in my late 20s. I'm pausing there, Bridget, because... I completely understand OCD. When I say I completely understand it, 
I grew up with a mom that was severely OCD. And, I, you know, people kid around about me, like, being OCD because of, you know, I want everything in place and all that stuff. But there's a difference between being kind of kind of sort of OCD, like I am, and actually being diagnosed with it. And I remember when I was a kid actually having to grow up with that and the mental illness and her anorexia and everything that went around that. And... It was just tough. So anyway, that's why I pause there when you say, I have OCD, which was diagnosed in my late 20s. I'll go on. She says, I used alcohol to self-medicate to relieve my never-ending anxiety. You know, I sometimes wonder if my mom would have been better off if she were drinking. You know, I just don't know, you know, because that thing was just killing her. I mean, killing her. Words going through her head all the time, constantly checking everything. Um, I completely get it. She says, of course, alcohol only made it worse. Well, I guess my mom wouldn't have been better off. But once I realized, but once I realized this, it was too late. I grew up in a fairly unhappy home. My dad was a Vietnam veteran and had PTSD, and my mom suffers from bad anxiety also. So my dad was also, he was in the Air Force, uh, Bridget. So uh, anyway, very, very interesting here. Um, Some of my earliest memories are of worry and wishing to escape to a different life. Man, I can relate to that. The first time I ever drank alcohol was when I was 14, and it was like a bomb going off in my head. I loved it. Man, Bridget, you're telling my story. It was the best thing that I'd ever experienced, and I couldn't wait to do it again. I don't think I've ever drank normally. I always drank to get drunk. Wasn't that the point? Question mark. Man, girl, you were telling my story. I can relate to this. She says, I could never control my drinking. I could never have just one drink. I'd have a sip of alcohol. Um, uh, if I have a sip of alcohol, the force within me to consume and consume and consume is overwhelming and I would be unable to stop. My life was a series of blackouts, severe hangovers, anxiety, and obsession with alcohol. I was able to be abstinent during my first pregnancy, which gave me time to reflect on drinking and how it was, how it tipped into being problematic. It was, uh, I was abstinent, but because of my self-medicating booze was gone and a whole heap of mental illness issues bubbled up to the surface and I was diagnosed with OCD. Once I had my baby, I waged a battle with myself to be able to have a drink, but breastfeed and many times would lose control and then beat myself up because I drank too much and then needed to feed the feed my baby and I couldn't. I became a master uh, at timing, feeding around drinking and I'm sorry to say there are uh, there are times I breastfed when I probably shouldn't have. My firstborn was born in 2007, and between 2007 and June, June, June 10th, 2011, I was on a spiral downwards with my drinking. I had no control. I was anxious. I was depressed. I drank alone. I drank a lot. I wanted to stop, but I couldn't, and I was mentally ill. In 2010, I 
found out I was pregnant with my second child and this gift of time for me to be able to step back from drinking allowed me the opportunity to stop that I hadn't taken with my first. I began to drink or I began to do the work of understanding what was happening in my brain. My daughter was born on the 18th of December, 2010. And the first thing I did was that, that I did was plan when I was, I planned when I was going to have a drink. I decided that I would only have one drink every now and then. And then considering I had not drank for nine months, I was going pretty well. I only drank maybe three or four times until June 10th of 2011. On this night, a group of my girlfriends and I went out for dinner. I drove my car there and the, and with the intention of driving home, but it was stressful getting out of the house. And by the time I arrived at the restaurant, I was frazzled. Everyone was drinking and I thought to myself, I'll just have one. Famous last words, right? The night ended with me in a blackout and getting home at 3 a.m. according to the taxi receipt. The next day I came to in the most horrific, with the most horrific hangover, a screaming baby and a toddler who needed me and an overwhelming sense of utter despair. In that moment, I wanted to die. I literally wanted to cut my arms open and bleed out all over the anxiety and, and now filled every cell of my being. It was that moment when I realized I could never, ever drink again. It was that moment that I realized if I drank again, I would die. And it was at that day that I got sober and I have been ever, and I have been sober ever since by the, in big capital letters, grace of God. I didn't fit into the mold of an alcoholic who was physically dependent. I was never a daily drinker, but I am an alcoholic. I find the medical community's rigid definition of, of an alcoholic as unhelpful because you don't need to have a physical dependency to be one. By the time you do, the road back is so steep. And if medically intervention was made sooner, uh, it could help so many more people. I remember once I admitted to a psychologist that I thought I was an alcoholic because I was unable to control my drinking and had several dire consequences as a result. He scoffed at me and said, you're not, al you're not an alcoholic. I've worked with alcoholics and you don't have a physical dependency. Luckily, I was already sober at the time and doing the work, but I found his comments to be most unhelpful. Needless to say, I will never go back to him. I have listened to only one of your podcasts, Mimi F. Her story embraces and it echoes mine. I, I intend to listen to many more and I am so thankful for finding your podcast. God bless you. Warmest regards. Bridget R. from Australia. Well, thank you, Bridget. Oh, that was uh, just, just lovely. You're a good writer too. I really appreciate you writing in, that was quite, quite lovely. And God bless you on your journey and uh, keep me up to date. And once again, congrats on your 10 years. All right, everybody. That is the end of this particular episode. 
I take this one week at a time. I will probably be back next week, but God bless you. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, and we will be talking to you soon. Bye-bye now. Stay crazy.